You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Good to see Yay. you. Oh, good to be seen. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Excited to be here. Oh, yeah. It's always Woo! fun. Me too. Well, I've got a, a topic that may feel kind of close to home for you today. Okay. I, I want you to tell me what you know about garlic mustard and your feelings oh. about it. <sighs> okay. I have several How feelings about have? it. Yes. How long do we have? Some people aren't going to yeah. even know what this is. Yeah. Okay. So Th- on one side, I appreciate that it is a it is so prolific and that it tastes lovely when you get it at the right point and how useful and versatile it is. On the other, try and how trying when we pull it, really easy to pull, right? Super easy. Like there's barely any roots. Yep. On the other side, those seeds get everywhere. When you are if you are pulling at the uh-huh. wrong time of year and you're trying to prevent seeds from oh, getting man. everywhere. Good luck. You'll make it worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, my I, feelings are yeah. that it's uh, it smells nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously brought to this country as a culinary herb for people who don't know what it is. And um, I'm not a, a huge fan because it, it it's taking over the forests uh, yeah. where I I work. Yeah, don't I love will that. say though, I have mixed feelings on it because it's. To me, it's it's not like it's taking over and pushing out plants that are there. It tends to mostly, it seems like, take over areas where earthworms have come through and already killed everything else off. Mm. So it's like it's taken advantage of an empty niche in nature. So it's like, I don't begrudge the plant really like utilizing a big empty spot of nice, rich black soil that literally nothing else is growing in because mm-hmm. nothing else will grow there anymore. So, I mean... You know, I have complex it's, feelings. It's taking it, it's taking the opportunity. It's not pushing anything out, but at the same time, it's also taking over. Yeah. Well, yep. good observation, Kirk. We will come back to the earthworms. Uh, okay. Just, just everything to comes back to worms eventually. Catch everybody up. Yes, we are talking mm-hmm. about an invasive plant species called garlic mustard. It was brought, as you said, to this country because you can eat it. It tastes like garlic and like mustard figure uh well it turns out it great may pesto. actually you know yeah great pesto rachel you were talking about pulling garlic mustard that is something that is frequently done at the kind of nature centers that we work at and in all kinds of mm-hmm. managed um woodlands. Places, yeah. yeah right it turns out it may actually be better to leave the garlic mustard alone <clears throat> yes so there is do, do explain. There's a conservation biologist at <coughs> Cornell University named Dr. Bernd Blossy. And he has Great been name. doing research on invasive species for decades. He studies garlic mustard along with purple loosestrife, 
water chestnut, mm. Japanese knotweed, and uh, the oh. reed phragmites, which are some That's pretty some heavy ones. hitters in the Those are uh, hard ones. <laughs> in, We've talked about species. Japanese knotweed. It's a veritable who's who of invasive plants. Oof. Yeah. Uh, he also, you know, he he researches among other things biological controls for invasive species, which has cool. been very yeah. successfully done for uh, purple loosestrife. Which oh, yeah. maybe we should. Did we talk about that on the show? I feel like we should talk about it we sometime. It might be on my list. Maybe. <laughs> uh, maybe next week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I won't do it then. Uh, and also, he looks at the various. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't planning to particularly, but now I won't. <laughs> um. It'll be, I'm just going to point out that just because we're saying that, it's going to be like two years before we get around yeah, to talking probably. about it. You know that, right? Oh, 100%. Okay, just check it. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's also, he also studies uh, various environmental factors that can increase or decrease the spread of invasive species. So now we're going to yeah. start talking about some ecosystems and some inter interactions so things get a little complex because nothing's simple in an ecosystem. No. Uh, no. A lot of people don't know this, but Kirk, you're kind of alluded to this, but earth, all the earthworms found in the Northern United States are an invasive species, which I know you two know, but yep. a, a lot of people yes. just it, I don't. think there's technically don't. a couple spots where there are some native earthworms in the North America, but like for the most part, yeah, like, yeah it's like mostly in the South, yeah. right? So the yeah. last yeah, glaciation, the yeah, the last glaciation basically scraped all the, any earthworms that might've been there before. Um, Away and, or, then, and then kept it cold for yeah, like kept two it cold, years. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and <laughs> Not so, a great time for like any life, let alone earthworms. Yeah, yeah, basically anywhere north of like Pennsylvania did not have any earthworms until European colonists arrived, bringing their earthworms with yeah. them. And earthworms disturb ecosystems, particularly forest ecosystems. Um, one of the yep. things they do... Boy, howdy, do they ever. Yeah, they sure do. Um, they eat up the fallen leaves at a very quick rate. Uh, this is called the duff layer, uh, and North American forest. Oh yeah, duff layer. Duff layer. That's a Simpsons reference. Okay, That's okay. <laughs> Sorry. go on. <laughs> Did not catch that. I mean, the beer. The beer I'm is duff, right? Laughing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Right. Yeah. That's all it was. Yeah. Duff man. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, North American forest plants evolved with this thick duff layer, and many of them struggle to survive when that is taken away by earthworms eating it all. And mm -hmm. yeah. the worms also change the way nutrients are available in the soil, which favors non-native species. And, you know, all of this means that earthworms make forests in general much more hospitable to invaders. And... These invaders are usually plants that co-evolved with earthworms the way our native species did not. Also, I did not know this. Deer spread earthworms and make their numbers increase in areas that they already what? exist. Really? Yes. Um, there's been so? research done in various, case, various places, including um, some University of Minnesota researchers who did a bunch of exclusion plots in... I think northern Wisconsin. So yeah. That's areas of the forest that they fence off mm -hmm. to deer, and then they compare them with similar areas that are not fenced off. Yep. And they found this. 
so these experiments take place over you know decades really and they have found that the unfenced areas have not zero earthworms um I mean, sorry, the, the fenced areas have not zero earthworms, but the f- unfenced areas have much higher numbers of earthworms than the fenced areas. The areas where the huh. deer are have much higher okay. numbers. Okay. Do they know why? Like what well, the mechanism is? no, nobody knows for sure. Yeah. And there are two main hypotheses. One is huh. that the deer poop and pee are basically feeding the earthworms. Extra nutrients okay. going into yeah. the soil. Okay. Mm, okay, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah maybe. I... Two is deer eating plants, you know, browsing on the plants, make the plants send more energy to growing their roots, and the roots provide extra nutrients for the worms. But it could be some other factor that oh, hasn't yeah. been thought of. Yeah. <clears throat> more studies needed. More cool. studies needed. Yeah. Combination yeah. of the two. But... So now we're getting back to garlic mustard. As you mentioned, garlic mustard really takes over in areas where earthworms have already invaded significantly. Definitely. Yeah. Um, right. It also turns out, so, and, and earthworms are linked to the presence of deer, but it also turns out, based on Barron's research, that pulling garlic mustard is actually counterproductive. So he did some experiments and he showed the following. Yes. In areas where garlic mustard was present. So if, if you have an area where garlic mustard's present, but you exclude the deer or there are only small numbers of deer, it does not crowd out the native plants. In areas where garlic mustard exists in large amounts, but is left alone, it actually starts decreasing in abundance. And after 10 to 12 years, the remaining plants are small and they're not that common. They're not wow. carpeting the forest wow. the way they do at the beginning. Okay. In areas where garlic mustard was managed by pulling, the invasion just kind of kept going and stayed strong year after year and the plants remained large and they also covered a bigger area of the land. <laughs> that is Great. so counterintuitive. Yes. Yep. And huh. there are some other downsides to pulling garlic mustard, namely... It removes nutrients from the ecosystem and it brings people in to trample areas that they would not otherwise be trampling. Mm. Right. Right. So in conclusion, the best thing you can actually do to manage garlic mustard is to leave it alone and also kill as many deer as possible. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Actually, according, there's a, the article I was reading quoted a New York State Extension Service biologist who said that a population density of five to seven deer per acre would significantly reduce the spread of garlic mustard and also potentially decrease the spread of Lyme disease. <laughs> Wait, five to seven <laughs> per acre? Yeah. That's still a wow. lot. I That's don't know. So yeah. much deer. So many deer. It still deer. seems like a lot. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going five to seven per acre. Uh <laughs> Per, no, sorry, yeah. per square mile. Per oh, square mile. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's much better. Uh-huh. Much, much better. <laughs> Thank you for calling me out on that. <laughs> I was doing the math here. Uh, if it was yeah. five per <laughs> acre, that would mean they were saying it would be approximately 18,500 <laughs> deer uh, in the in the park where I work. And I, that seems high. <laughs> that does seem high. Oops. I will that say. That is pretty nope. high. <laughs> Versus, okay. Kirk, what would it be per square mile? 
at the park I work in, instead of 18,500, it's about five and a half deer in the whole park <laughs> is what would be recommended. And I can tell you once, once, the, um, once the, the harvest is done in the farm fields around the park and there's no more food out there and they all come into the forest, uh, it's more than five. <laughs> it's definitely more than five. <laughs> Five to seven deer per square mile would greatly reduce the spread of garlic mustard, as well as potentially decreasing the spread of Lyme disease. So there you have it. All right. Yeah. So that's what I have this week. My sources were an article in the Adirondack Almanac website and uh, NPR News. Great. Thank you. That's very cool. Welcome. We are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have something from Kirk. Woo! Hey, welcome back, everybody. I want to start this week off by making sure we're all on the same page language-wise by giving a definition. I'm talking this week about cognition. So I might as well drag out the Oxford Dictionary here and say cognition is the mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experiences, and the senses. Or another definition could be um, it is the acquisition, processing, storage, and use of information. That second definition sounds more like what I understand about cognition. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little bit cleaner definition. That, yeah. and it's also, that's also sort of the, the general definition that's used in some of the biological sciences is the acquisition, processing, storage, and use of information. That's what we call cognition. It's not a word we use every day, so I wanted to get that out of the way. I'll also say, Rachel, I know I wanted to apologize. I've been apparently causing some existential crises in your, in your brain. Absolutely. Um, and this, this, one's not, this one's not gonna help, sorry. Um, great. So... I'll add it to the tally. <laughs> it, this is this is like a big topic. I just I just struggle to like get get through and like try to cogently like sum this one up. Um, but that idea of cognition seems pretty straightforward, right? It's just that we are getting, processing, storing, and using information. So right. we can use our senses to acquire knowledge and under, and and understanding. It's it's a mental process too, though. So it's not just about the raw inputs. There has to be that sort of that mental piece in there, the uh, the use of the information and the storage of information. And so as an example, like seeing five apples on the table and seeing six hungry people, that's just the visual input, right? Mm. Cognition would be like taking that information, maybe doing some math and realizing, oh, there aren't enough apples for everyone to have one. But we got five apples and six people, right? So that, that'd be like a very simplistic sort of like example of cognition, perhaps. Um, does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Great. We're on the same page still. So uh, in the philosophy of mind, uh, there's those who propose what we call the extended mind thesis. And I'm not even going to try to go down this long rabbit hole (laughs) to fully explore uh, all this because in the end, well, this sort of comes down to this philosophical debate. Um, And we as humans created a concept called the mind and that's not like a physical thing that's a concept that we created and then we Mm -hmm. spent decades arguing over what we mean when we say the word the mind um 
And so we're debating over the meaning of a concept that we invented, which is like <laughs> okay. the most human thing ever. Because um, uh-huh. like in, in biology, it's almost, you know, you, some would argue that there is no mind, like there's a brain, there's a concept of like what a mind is. Um, but some would argue that it's more of like a concept than an actual physical thing. Mm-hmm. Because it's a concept though, we can have fun playing around at the squishy edges and poking them. And this is related to our one of our favorite sayings in the show that nature laughs at our little boxes. We yeah, put things in the nice neat boxes and then nature throws out examples that destroy the concept of where we thought the lines should be drawn. Mm-hmm. And my oh, story this absolutely. week is exactly that sort of thing. It makes mm. us stop and consider where we draw the lines. I can already tell so I'm going to hate this topic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mentioned the, ex- the extended mind thesis. And another word for this is extended cognition. So I think we can all agree on a general idea of um, what is part of cognition. But I ask you to consider the humble pen and paper. If I use my eyes to count the number of apples and the number of people and do the math in my head, that's certainly cognition. But what if there's like lots of food items and lots of people to keep track of? So I write the numbers down to help me remember them. I'm mm-hmm. not storing those numbers in my brain, right? I'm offloading that task to the paper and the pen. Are those right. tools then part of my right. extended cognition? They, you know, they are an extended part. Are they part of like an extended part of my mind, essentially? And what if the math is too difficult to keep track of in my head? Let's say it isn't apples I'm counting, but like calories. And I need to do more complicated math to figure out if there's enough calories in the table per person per serving. Well, now I'm using the pen and paper to help with my cognition of the math involved. Are the pen and paper part of my extended cognition? In a very real way, do these tools help me extend what it means to have a mind and and, and even extend what I'm able, able, jeez. <laughs> What I am able to conceive of. Uh, So the concept of extended cognition says yes. Now, like I said, I really don't want to go down the rabbit hole of whether or not extended cognition is valid. After all, it isn't something that can be maybe fully scientifically tested and resolved, although people are are trying to. Um, It's somewhat more of a philosophical debate over where you want to draw the lines around the definitions of mind and cognition. People are free to agree or disagree, mm-hmm. but I think the implications are more interesting than the raw debate itself over the mm-hmm. like, meaning of the term. So you're listening to a podcast right now, and the thoughts from my brain are spreading across the world and being heard by thousands of people. The internet had made this easier than ever. I no longer have to be the guy in town square trying to get people to listen to me, you know, as I'm <laughs> yelling out my crazy thoughts. Um, <laughs> like, I can put my ideas out around the world, and I can ask questions, too. You know, I, I, I can store amazing amounts of memories in the form of lists and photos and essays online in a very real way. The Internet has become an extension of our minds. We can go to some place like Reddit and we can appeal to the collective knowledge of humanity by asking a serious question in Ask Science. Or we can appeal to the collective knowledge of society by posting social interactions that went bad in the Am I the Asshole subreddit. Like we can we can appeal to this sort of larger <laughs> I hive love that mind, one. right? Which is <laughs> oh, me pretty, too. pretty amazing. And if we're appealing to the hive mind to extend our cognition beyond the limits of what we could do by ourselves, that's pretty amazing. Uh, this ability to use extended cognition, whether it's a pad of paper or an iPad connected to the web, is a very human thing. Uh, and people have wondered, 
if we assume that extended cognition is valid, a valid concept, then are there other animals out there that also do this? Mm. Well, it turns out, yes, there are. And yes, there are scholarly Ooh. articles about it. So Yay, <clears throat> I'm going to butcher, butcher some names here. Um, Hilton Jepiasu, I th- hope that's right, and Kevin uh, Lalland uh, argued in a pa- paper published in 2017 in the Journal of Animal Cognition that the information a spider receives through their web should be considered a form of extended cognition, uh, which is super cool. They are particularly interested in spiders Hmm. uh, because they're small animals. And in a general sense, the more complex the information you need to digest, the more complex your brain needs to be. And brains are information hungry. And there's an energy cost associated with operating this big old brain, right? Well, this gets tricky as your body size decreases. You only have so much space to devote to your brain and accordingly so much energy you can devote as well. And there's even been studies that have shown like certain brains, like you can, like mammal brains, for example, you can only shrink them so small before they won't do all the stuff they need to do. There won't be space for those things. Mm. And when you talk about like insects or spiders and things like that, their brains are so tiny you'd be right to assume, well, they can't really, you know, they must not have very complex lives or complex societies and stuff. And when you study them, you go, oh, shoot, no, they actually are super complex and have very complex behaviors and are amazing predators and have societies and rules and all kinds of stuff. So you're like, okay, how is that all possible in such a tiny brain? And it could be that they're using extended cognition to help out with that. So uh, some examples here, um, if we want to see like animals, what's called offloading some of their cognition to an external source, it should not only be large animals like humans, but also these small animals like spiders, where it would be even more beneficial. Spiders are predators and predators have been shown to require greater cognition in order to survive. So a spider seemed like a great candidate for for using this. That's what they were studying. And they found that spiders use their webs Mm-hmm. to gather information about the world. Uh, and so they also found that like, the repeated structure of the web and the way it's built actually saves on memory. Like spiders don't have to memorize how to make the whole web and measure out, I'm going to need this much silk and make this many turns and this many, you know, divide it into this many pieces. It's sort of more a structure of re- the repeated patterns they're doing allow them to kind of save on the memory space to not have to have that whole picture. They're offloading that need, like offloading that onto this, the structure of the web and how it's built, which is mm-hmm. a weird concept, but uh, is pretty interesting. And um, they also do things like they use a drag line to find their way back from the web if they you know have to run away from a larger predator or something like that. They don't need to devote any brain space to f- like, where did I go We're away from the space. web? They can just follow that line back, mm-hmm. yeah. right? They're using that physical object as a replacement for the memory that they would have to have in their head. Similarly, they showed that spiders seem to leave behind silken threads in the environment that may be helping them just find their way in general, not just when they like get blown out of their nest or something. Uh, The more times they are successful in in a certain direction, the more lines are laid down and they start to form like a pathway to success. And we see this, I was thinking about it, I'm like, well, we see this in humans and other animals as well. Like if you have to walk through a field or even just like a lawn, we naturally take the well-worn path, just sort of almost subconsciously knowing that the collective experience of all those who came before us 
will have already worked out the best path through this field. We don't need to sit out and calculate it for ourselves. We just use the path which has the collectible, you know, which is there, which is like a collective external form of cognition. So that right. load has been taken off of our brains. And it seems like spiders do this as well. So what you're cool. saying is every time we walk through uh, a forest path and we get spider webs Make in the... our face, we're messing. You could be. We're messing I with mean, the spider's <laughs> navigation system. Possibly. Possibly. I think some of those ones you get in your face are from spiders that are ballooning. So they're just like uh -huh. trying to, you know, um, get, to another, get to another space far away. But, you know, yeah, we could be sort of messing with spider's cognition a bit by walking through all those, it sounds like. Um, so <laughs> one of the really cool things spiders do too is they have special sensors. I just got to talk about this because I was reading about it. They have special sensors on their legs that can not only detect vibrations on the web, but can filter out unimportant frequencies. There's actually like frequency filters on yeah. their legs. So like and wind. They can filter out. Yeah, they literally like filtering out the unimportant frequencies and only feeling the ones that like matter. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that I had not realized is that Prey doesn't actually even need to touch the web. The web what? vibrates with the air as like prey or flying prey approaches a web, like if they're flying toward it or even past it, and they can detect the vibrations from the wings of an insect as they're moving the air. So they can like literally feel Whoa. the insect as it approaches huh. the web because the web vibrates from the air moving. And some spiders will actually jump out of the web and catch the prey that is simply passing by the web and not even getting caught, which That's is so cool. terrifying. Wild. Like, I had no idea they could do that. That's so cool. Um, interestingly, the authors of the paper I was reading actually cite this as an amazing example of how spiders gather information, but they don't consider it part of cognition because it's just raw information. Um, and they're, they're not using, in that sense, in that case, they're not using the web to like store informa information or like offload anything. They're just sort of like extending their senses, which I think is equally interesting and really cool. Hmm. Um, you know, either way, it's, it's pretty incredible how they like extend their information gathering to an area much larger than their body using a tool rather than something that is actually part of their physical body, which again helps them because they're really, really small. So it seems like mm -hmm. that the web really does work as almost like an extra sensory organ, but also as a way to like essentially keep track of information and make sense of their world, which is very cool. And you know, it may play a role in the spider's cognition, which might explain how these tiny animals can have such large and complicated cognition in such a tiny body. So I hope that made sense. Um, it's this kind of cool idea that there's probably some animals out there that are extending their cognition um, beyond just their inner, you know, workings of their mind in a similar way that humans do. It is kind of an area that is full of a lot of ongoing study, um, but I thought it was really kind of a fascinating thing. And uh, spiders doing it is just also spiders and how they use their webs is absolutely fascinating. Uh, the paper really I kind cool. of mentioned before, but it's called Extended Spider Cognition. It was in the journal Animal Cognition in February 2017. Um, and there's a lot of good information about it online. So if you want to know more about it, check it out. Oh, thanks. That's a really fascinating thanks, topic. Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. My I brain mean, hurts, but yeah, Obviously, I think someone could do an entire, like a lot of our, our, our things we talk about, you could probably do an entire podcast on just exploring 
what this all really means. <laughs> I can I can only really go so deep into it right now, um, mm-hmm. but it, it's it's a really cool area of study, and it it always blows my mind when you start to read about something. You go, this is not even something I realized people were studying, right? So there's so many cool niches out there in science that people are like, this is what I want to study, uh, and it's so hard to keep up with everything that we're learning, but it's, it's fun trying. I love trying. It's great. So yeah. Well, speaking of loving trying, Rachel, are you going to try to entertain us with some, something amazing and brain breaking? Or I don't just know fun? if it's brain is at least fun. <laughs> Might be a little Perfect. brain baking, well, breaking. Well, we'll find out if our brains get broken uh, after a tiny little break here. All right, welcome back, everyone. So, all right, both Kirk and Victoria, you both have children. Tell me. Yes. True. <laughs> uh, when know? they were babies, did you mm-hmm. use baby talk? Oh, yeah. No. I mean, we did not. A little, probably. Yeah. I mean, some of the mm-hmm. little like cutesy stuff, I mean, people do a little bit. I know something that um, goes back in my family. I know like my, I think my mom, when she was raising us, um, she'd be saying stuff. And one of her friends, I remember remark- remarked to her, he said, you know, you talk to them like they're adults. You know, you're not mm-hmm. using all kinds of cutesy little things like you're this is when you're a little bit older, but it's like you're answering you know questions and you're explaining things on a deep level and you're not like talking down to them and stuff. And she was like, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like I think it was kind of how I took to heart too. It's like I you know when I, we had a baby, I was like uh, just kind of not being mm-hmm. overly cutesy. I mean, I guess you are a little bit. You want to be animated to get their attention and stuff. But um, oh I yeah, think we kind of tried to you know be more just have them like have them live up to the expectations of the way we were treating them maybe does that make sense Mm -hmm. yeah that's kind of what i'm doing with uh my niece when i see her is very much like all right we're gonna hang (laughs) but also she's like five months old so yeah um i I think you want (laughs) them to hear all the sounds that are uh part of human communication i don't usually talk Mm -hmm. to adults like babies but now, now you're going to tell me that, like, oh there's God. some huge advantage to, to baby talk? No. Okay, great. Well, well <laughs> I, I will say, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I have, I have right? heard that um, babies, like, tend to pay more attention to higher-pitched sounds. Mm. So, and dogs. Yes. Yeah. Dogs as well. So... It's a pretty common thing in human culture to talk with babies in those higher pitches and with a lot more exaggeration when you are talking with said babies. Mm -hmm. And until recently, it was thought to only be a human trait. Oh, I saw this article. (laughs) 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 So enter our favorite, uh, one of our favorite journal, scientific journals, PNAS. Uh, and scientists, researchers at yes. Woods Hole, including <laughs> Layla Sa- 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 Sahai, I'm so sorry, Nicole Hadid, uh, and <laughs> et al. <laughs> uh, 
they Man, were studying does so much research it's amazing oh right i love woods hole now what uh <laughs> <laughs> what it's a I don't great think you heard place what I said clearly <laughs> it is a great place but it's not what i said <laughs> oh no said. he said at al making... at al does so much great research yeah <laughs> But Woods Hole is great too. Uh, I gotta Excellent. say, that was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Carry on. Okay. Nothing to see here. So, uh, no, not at all. <laughs> they were studying whether they found something interesting with some parents of these aquatic mammals, and found that they also use what is apparently called. Parentese. Yes. Apparently that's that what is it, the, it is. Okay. The term of parentese. art. Wow. So it's been observed in a couple different spaces, uh, this parentese. It's been, a, it's been observed in rhesus macaques, some squirrel monkeys, zebra finches, as well as gorillas. But now we can add one more to that okay. list. <gasps> Bottlenose dolphins. <laughs> All right. Exactly. That was weird. It sounded weirdly <laughs> dolphinese when I said that. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> so, how dolphins communicate? We know that they use echolocation, but dolphins generally communicate with a series of clicks and whistles and sounds. But they, each individual, when they are in a pod or in their own little family, each mm-hmm. dolphin has a signature sound that functions very similarly to like someone calling your name. It's very distinct of, Hey, this is, I'm here. I'm here. This is me. I'm right here. And it's, Oh, Rachel's right here. Rachel's here kind of thing as we're in a group, Uh as they're moving. Um, and it's a very distinct like whistle. They were studying, these scientists were studying 34 years worth of audio recordings um, captured by sounds made by 19 female bottlenose dolphins in uh, Florida. And they found that when they were, when these mothers were using their signature whistle, they did it with a higher, at a higher frequency when they were calling towards or near their calves and they were using a wider range of frequency with their calves than when they did when they were just with adults or not near their calves at all. Interesting. So like, Oh, I'm going over here. Here I am. It's like, (laughs) baby, here I am. Hi, honey. Come on over. I'm right here. Over here. Versus a, I'm here. Interesting. Yeah. So they recently were able to find that they were using and have a pitch change and were using baby talk with their, with their little, with their little babies, with their calves. Oh, it's such a cute little dolphin. Right. Look at it go. Want to jump through the hoop? Yeah. No, they don't do that. Yeah. It's at least like, it's at least a way it's at least a way to like with humans to get the baby's attention, right? Higher pitches tend to keep and get a baby's attention more than lower pitches. Um, 
versus right. when she like is just announcing just talking to other adult humans you know like they can pay attention to her presence to the mother dolphin's presence versus a baby who is like just exploring the world and finding all these fun things and it's like oh wait hello it's mom okay i'm paying attention um but it, it's really cool because it, it does have they're going on to study more when it comes to the vocal learning and language development in animals but also helps it it could help show how dolphins learn to speak and learn how to talk with each other and communicate which is just really cool interesting yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it's so funny to find that connection right but maybe so i not don't have that's surprising you know right so I don't have like a long topic this week. I just uh, read this article uh, and then I read the scientific article and it was really fascinating and I, I had to share with you all. Um, so my sources this week were the Appreciate Smithsonian it. Magazine who did an article from, it was by Sarah Kuta. Uh, Dolphins use baby talk when their calves are around. And then the uh, PNAS article bottlenose dolphin mothers modify signature whistles in presence of their own calves which was published june 26 2023 so cutting edge science Amazing. here hot off the presses Woo! thank you Woo. Woo. all right awesome well thanks everyone for listening and <laughs> we'll see y'all next week bye all right yeah, bye-bye Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.